Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Rethink Culture, the podcast that shines a spotlight on business leaders who are rethinking workplace culture. My name is Andreas Constantino, and I'm your host. And I'm also chairman and founder at Slash Data with a passion for rethinking culture. I have the pleasure today of hosting David New. David is a serial entrepreneur. He's founded Net Conversions, Body TV, and Tiny Pulse. All three of them were acquired by publicly traded companies. He's also studied abroad at Beijing University and INSEAD in France, so very well traveled. And he recently started his fourth company, Delight Labs, which specializes in digital PR. And he also enjoys playing golf with his 12-year-old daughter and 12- and 8-year-old son. And he tells me that they're already better than him. So very much welcome, David, to the Rethink Culture podcast. Thank you, Andreas. So you've been working on culture for way too long, at least since founding Tiny Pulse. What is culture to you and when did you take an interest in culture? Yeah, so I think uh, those are great questions. You know, culture to me, there's a lot of definitions, but the one that resonates closest to me is like, one is if I ask people, what are three adjectives that you would use to describe our workplace environment? And if you had a word cloud and those words pop up, you know, culture is that embodiment of what it is. You know, some places are very intense, some are very relaxed, but, you know, what is that word cloud going to be and what are the predominant big words on that word cloud? And then also, you know, what are the norms and expectations that when no one's working or no one's looking, you know, how do people treat their colleagues, treat their clients and each other? And I think those are embodiments of like what culture means to me and why I'm so interested in it is I believe culture is just a journey and I struggle on that journey and uh, I'm still on that journey and uh, every company is hard and probably the hardest part is dealing with people How do you recruit the right people? How do you motivate the right people? And how do you retain them? And I've seen the struggles and challenges and, you know, triumphs as well in my first two companies. And, you know, part of, um, for me, was understanding, well, if I can be a better, if I create a better culture, I'm a better leader, I will probably get better business outcomes and delight more clients. So, you know, that was a journey for me. And part of the inspiration was that I felt when I talked to a lot of other business leaders, when I took some time off in my career, they had the same struggles. So it wasn't just unique to U.S. business culture. It wasn't unique to industry. It wasn't unique to size. It was a challenge throughout all the folks I ended up talking with. So that's another reason why I was inspired to start Tiny Pulse, which really focused on culture. So when did you take an interest in culture? Like, didn't, Was it a sudden thing or did you always want to create workplaces that made, you know, that, that were fulfilling, I guess? Yeah, you know, I would say that early on, I always just thought the person who worked the hardest, who had the best ideas, would win. And so that was more when I was an IC early on in my career during my first startup. And then when we started building the second one, it was about scale. It really hit me that, you know, that wasn't going to be the way you needed a team to be able to pull. So I would say in my second startup around Buddy TV is when that kind of light bulb moment started slow burning in my head. It's like, oh, wait a second. I need to think about this differently if I want to have a more impactful career. And what was some of the things you started doing at Tiny Pulse differently, yeah, more intentionally. Yeah. 
I, I would say one of the things that's pretty ironic is, you know, we always would have our culture at my prior company and we'd have our mission and our values and it would just be in like the break room, right? But if you ask people, what are the values? You know, no one could recite them. And if you're not able to recite those values, how are you going to be able to live by them and make decisions by those values? So one of the things that we did on that front is I try to front load a lot of the values. So in our job JDs, and when we posted jobs, we would put what our values were in there. So I understand that there's going to be great candidates who resonate with our values, and there's going to be great candidates who don't, and that's okay. But I didn't want to have any misconceptions and I want to have a lot of transparency. So we would front load those values and then people can opt in. Am I going to apply or not? And then one of the application questions was, give me two examples of where you embody two of these values. So I really wanted them to start thinking like, hey, can I really live by these values? Right. Versus like, oh, OK, this company just has these values. This company has these values. But no, no. At Tiny Pulse, these are the values. And can I easily come up with two examples that embody them? And so, you know, that was one way that uh, we front-loaded that culture very early on at the start of an employee journey. And then underpinning it throughout, you know, part of Tiny Pulse is we had a feature called Cheers for Peers, which enabled you to give kudos and shout-outs to your fellow colleagues. And in those, when you give out those shout-outs, you can append a value. Like our values were delight, like D was delight customers, E was elected spread positivity. So you could choose like, oh, this person did X, and it aligns with one of these values. So we use, even use that to underpin and reinforce those cultural uh, values that we had throughout the organization. So those were uh, just two examples that come to mind. And you also told me a story earlier on about your obsession with simplicity, and how it was a value, I assume, right? And how like it helps you compete. Can you tell that story? Yeah. So I think uh, the the book was Rework, uh, the folks at Basecamp. And I was reading that book and they said, well, look, you're never going to be able to outcompete big people. But instead of thinking that as a, a weakness, think about it as a strength. And you know, I have friends who work at Microsoft, so sorry if this uh, gets on their nerves. But sometimes when I'm like using you know, their word product, I'm looking for a spell check or grammar check. I'm like, well, which menu is it in, right? And I always have to try to find it. And so, you know, how that has inspired me on the flip side is, well, with Tiny Pulse, you know, the word tiny also conveys it's like lightweight, easy, and approachable. So when we started, we really, we had less resources. So the opposite of like spell check is like, well, everything should be super clear and it should just be like, it just sing and just be in your face. So we really stripped down what you could do is like the tiny pulse, you could initially, you can only send out one pulse per time period. And in that tiny pulse, you couldn't even see the question, right? You just had to trust the process that we were going to send it on your behalf and it was going to be good for your culture. But on the one hand is, you know, some people are like, whoa, I, I don't want this foreign service sending out emails that I don't even get to preview. But on the other hand, if you're busy and you trust it, it was this magical carousel of these really great insightful questions that would go out and you didn't really have to do anything except sort of see the results and review the results and use that as insights to create change. So we made it super simple and we really constrained the options that the customer had to you know, get a pulse on how happy, frustrated, and burnt out their people were. And at Tiny Pulse, you collected lots of data on employee engagement, right? Yes. Did that like 
light a, a light bulb? Did it create a eureka moment for you at some point? Did you start seeing data that surprised you? Did you get lots of new insights as a result of that process? Yeah, you know, I think one that really popped out early on when we were sifting through a lot of the data and we were looking, you know, our North Star was, you know, how happy are you at work, right? Because if you ask someone how engaged, it's hard to translate. It's hard to understand if it's a compilation of questions. But if you just ask them how happy you are, you know, most people get it. Like, you know, if I ask my kids or my parents, hey, how happy are you? They kind of just get that. So that was our North Star that we were optimizing for. So we looked at all these other questions and, um, you know, the relationship between high scores there and high scores with how happy are you at work. And the one that popped out that was a surprise to us was how transparent do you feel management is? So there was this huge correlation with this feeling of transparency and how happy they were at work. Wow. So that, yeah, it was surprising to us too. And we thought that, you know, we were pretty transparent, but given that we really tried to push for as much transparency as we could within our organization, because we wanted to, we knew that transparency is good, but we didn't know how good it could be. So we really tried to push that as much as possible moving forward. Was it also the, um, the case that companies who were not transparent had unhappy employees? Yes. Was the reverse also true? Yes. There was a very strong correlation that if that they were very closeted and closed, that they were going to have lower scores. Now, the interesting thing about the question, it was, you know, it wasn't objective. It was more like, how transparent do you feel the company is, right? So yeah. part of it is just also c- can be delivery, the vibe, you know, do they have, do the executives have offices? Do they close their doors a lot? You know, do they take meetings at their desk? Do they not? So there's a lot of things that can contribute to the feeling of transparency. Was there some other part of culture that you built, which you are really proud of? Yeah, you know, I think this is a, a byproduct is we had, um, our offices were roughly split in two places. One was Seattle, which where I am right now. And then the other was in Saigon in uh, Vietnam. And what I found out is that people started, when they ended up leaving Tiny Pulse, they started having these alumni groups and, and Facebook and WhatsApp and other places, and they would still get together. And uh, it was just amazing to me that, one, they liked their colleagues enough where they would keep in touch afterwards. And recently, you know, I just talked with uh, one of the folks and they're like, oh, you know, there are a lot of tiny marriages that came out of Tiny Pulse. And now there's even going to be some tiny babies because those marriages are resulting in kids. So I, I take that as a, a really good feather that, you know, we did recruit like-minded people. They did some great work at Tiny Pulse. And when they chose to leave, they still had an affinity for the culture where they kept in touch, not only with current employees, but they even ones that also left and they formed affinity groups to keep in touch and, you know, of like-minded folks. I used to be an entrepreneur that took people leaving the company as a personal failure. Yes. And I spoke to a fellow entrepreneur, a French guy back then, and he said, look, I was the same. And then I came around to realize that what I'm I'm not sad about people leaving the company or I don't take it personally because everyone has their own path in life. And at some point, our needs will not just match their needs with the company needs. What he was proud of is when people were proud to have worked in his company, Mm -hmm. even if they had left. Mm -hmm. So the same concept of, you know, rejoicing in an alumni group or a group that, you know, with people that, that have done their service and then moved on to something else because that's the course of life. Yeah. But 
Yeah. So similar concept. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think I'm very privileged that people choose to have me and the organization be a chapter of their journey. And, you know, some people's chapters are longer, some are shorter, but it's a privilege to be a part of it. And hopefully they do great work and they remember their time fondly. And I had people, you know, one of my first interview questions with most people is, hey, what are your short-term and long-term goals in life? Because if we choose to mutually get on this journey together, my goal is to try to help you get to your goals as quickly as possible. Mm. And some of these people would say like, hey, I want to be like you and I want to be an entrepreneur. And when they've taken off and they've become entrepreneurs, I'm super proud of them because they're very transparent about that. And I helped them get there. And, you know, one of them just won a CEO of the year here in Seattle. And he was, you know, at Tiny Pulse and ended up spinning out. So I'm uh, remarkably proud of him. And now at Delight Labs, are you doing things any differently with like how intentional you are with building culture or how and what culture is to you right now? You know, I think there's a a lot of similarities that I'm drawing from my experience at Tiny Pulse, which is to, you know, be very clear what the mission is, what the values are, and, you know, also front loading them with the um, hiring and the onboarding. So yes, I I draw a lot of those similarities and I bring them over and I'm not uh, ashamed to copy some of the values that I really liked at Tiny Pulse. And then also think about, you know, I'm older, I'm in a different phase of my life now, you know, are there values that are different to me right now than they were back then? And then also updating some of those as well. Is there something, some aspect of culture which you copied for someone from someone else um, that you can recall? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, plagiarize a lot of uh, great ideas from other people. And, you know, one of them is the L in Delight was uh, lead with solutions and embrace change. My first real job out of college, I was working in management consulting. And the head of the um, San Francisco office at that time was a remarkable woman by the name of Mary Club. And, you know, she would say like, hey, folks, you can come into my office anytime. You can complain. You can moan about things you don't like. But you cannot leave the office after doing that without at least giving me one or two suggestions about how we change that. Because if you've been thinking about all these brain cycles about how wrong something or broken it is, you probably said, well, why don't we just do it this way? So lead with that change. So, you know, I've certainly uh, incorporated that at uh, Tiny Pulse. And that's a story that I actually share with people is like, you know, if you have something, we're not perfect, we want to refine, we want to get better, but at least lead with a solution. So we have a head start to make that right change. I remember also copying uh, something I heard from Simon Sinek in his team. It was a um, recording of of a meeting of his team with Simon, and he was asking everyone for a high five at the beginning of the meeting. So basically celebrating each other's help. So, you know, Mary helped me with X or David helped me with Y. Thank you for that. And virtual high five. And... It's so simple and so intuitive. And I think if you run it for a couple of meetings, at least I did, and it, it really uh, was intuitive for the rest of the team to follow. And it's like a very quick hack to give people a sense of achievement on a regular basis. Yeah, and I'll also throw in something uh, a little bit more lighthearted that we copied as well. So one of my friends is a great entrepreneur. They had these uh, awards at the end of the year that were peer nominated. So 
they would have these little kind of Oscar statuettes. Mm-hmm. And I went to one of these meetings and um, it was actually uh, Dave Nielsen at Guidant yeah. Financial. Uh, I think we both know. And I was an audience member and I couldn't believe it's like that Oscar Gooding Jr. moment when he's like on stage and people were so happy because it was pure nominated. So, you know, I definitely borrow that at our culture was at the end of the year, we have a series of awards where you nominate your peers you do nominations on on the screen, and then we actually have these statuettes that we give away at our company party. And our company party, the wrinkle that we do is instead of a traditional company party, I know another brilliant entrepreneur here in Seattle who owns the nicest fine dining establishment called Canlis. And once a year, you know, they just have a random party, and um, he invited me to one. And I'm like, okay, I'll go, I'll go check it out. And he said, oh, here's the catch, David. You have to wear a tux and a wig. I'm like, I don't like to wear a tux and I don't like to wear a wig. And that just sounds utterly ridiculous. I'm not going to go. And then I just said, you know what? Maybe I'll just need to trust the process and go. And I had an amazing blast. I was like, oh my gosh. Like I had friends. I couldn't even recognize them because they're wearing ripped wigs, right? It was like (laughs) this like, uh, it's like totally opposite. So then I said, at my company, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to dress up and wear wigs. And people thought I was crazy because, you know, I'm pretty like analytical and straight lace. So then they're like, what are you thinking, David? Are you off your rocker? But we have an awesome time. And we do that in both Seattle and Saigon. So those are some rituals that I've learned from other uh, uh, executives and bring in that I think add some spice to the tiny, uh, the tiny pulse culture. Was there something which you tried uh, in terms of culture and failed? Was there a hard lesson that you learned mm. in the process? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. Uh, oh, geez. Um, you know, one of the things that um, we try to do from our cultural perspective is that I learned from EO and YPO was around peer-to-peer learning. So, you know, we're big on refining and learning. So we try to bring in like... Um, presentations and kind of like four meetings like every couple of weeks where we'd have random people in, in cross-functional groups in the company, which was great to build those relationships. And then they would make presentations. So it could be about personal or it could be about business. And, uh, you know, I had like, hey, you know, like, hey, here's the Gestalt language protocol. Here's Johari window. Here's how to do them. And, you know, the reviews were actually very positive. But over time, I think that um, really broke down and we had to discontinue it primarily because it was hard to have confidentiality Mm. because, you know, these people weren't trained in that aspect. And, you know, some of the the issues that come up, you know, just take longer to solve. And since, you know, in in this YEO or YPO setting, you're the executive, so you can make changes much quicker. And then so that started drying out. So even though we had a hot and fast start and people were pretty excited about, oh, what's this new thing that we're trying to do? The, that aspect of peer-to-peer learning, which I was trying to incorporate into the culture, you know, ended up uh, fading out and we had to discontinue it over time. But uh, went in with a lot of fanfare, but uh, over time, uh, it just didn't work in the corporate setting for us. Moving on to something else with all the back and forth that we've seen in the last two or three years with going remote and then going back to the office and everyone having having a different view about where we should be, hybrid, remote, office, something else. Where do you stand? How would you start a new company? Would you do it remote, hybrid, or in what fashion? Yeah, 
Geez, yeah, this is so topical right now because, you know, Amazon, we're here in Seattle, they're like, hey, you need to start coming back to the office. And then people are going to stage a walkout, right? And because they don't want to go back to the office. So let me just start with where I am right now for Delight Labs. I have decided that we were going to be a remote first company and that we're going to augment that with like quarterly or semi-annual. I haven't figured out the cadence yet of meetings where we get together in person, where we do some training and then we do some, you know, just team bonding because I don't think video can ever replace meeting someone face to face. And I don't think anyone would argue against that. So that is where I am right now. Now, in terms of, I think, other folks, I think what is challenging is if people started, like Tiny Pulse was ostensibly in person in two different places. And I think there's a lot of benefits to learning, especially if you're in a high volume role. Like if you have a lot of SDRs, you know, you can listen and talk to them about, oh, how do you do that objection handling? How, how can we learn that? So there's tremendous value in that that you just don't get in a virtual setting. But yeah, I think if one person starts with in-person and then goes to remote, or someone's person starts off hybrid and then goes to somewhere else, or vice versa, you start uh, remote and you go physical, I think that's very hard because it's similar to that analogy that I had earlier on, which is the cultural values that you put in your job description. You said, hey, these are the values, and then mid-game, you change the values to something else, and then those people have to make a decision. So I think what I would default is... Whatever the founder chooses early on and setting those expectations should probably carry through to the life cycle. Mm -hmm. And it's okay if you want to make a change, but just be also okay with probably losing people because they want a different lifestyle. And the reason you choose remote first or you've chosen remote first, is it because it's the popular choice? Or some other reason? No, you know, I actually think the, ironically, I feel like the popular choice is a lot of people going back into the office. At least I'm heavily biased in Seattle tech scene, right? I'm, I'm yeah. hearing a lot of people going back. Yeah. I chose it because primarily I said, well, look, I am choosing not to raise money for this current startup. So, and I like capital constraints and I think it breeds the best innovation. And I fundamentally believe that with the flattening of the world, there's great talent everywhere around the world. So why should I just constrain myself with Seattle's greater metro geographic region when I can get talent throughout the world? Yes, it's more right. challenging. I have to do more processes and uh, uh, technology to facilitate. But I believe fundamentally that there's more talent that I can access. And that outweighs you know, having geographic proximity and going into the office. Totally agree. And I find that the companies, like my, my partner works in pharma mm -hmm. and they insist everyone to come back and, you know, you have one or two days work from home maximum. So I find companies like that will eventually find it very hard to have the best talent applying for them because the best talent will choose to work for someone in a different country. Mm -hmm. That's my, you know, personal prediction, if you like. Like, yeah. And I, I think I also, you know, obviously this is still near and dear to my heart since I can't get away from employee engagement and culture because I've been in that industry for so long. A lot of the research I've been also reading is that the people who struggle the most during the pandemic were some of the older folks who were living alone and maybe less facile with technology and bridging that gap and the younger folks just graduating from college. And in the middle folks with family and kids, you know, they, they were right. more okay. 
So with the younger folks, I think there's this expectation of like, hey, I'm going to get onboarded with a cohort and I'll get to meet people. I'll move to a new city like New York City and I'll have friends, you know, we'll get coffee, we might go get drinks or go for a walk. And I think those people, you know, may suffer because they're not getting that. So there, it could be different for different age groups of people where they are in their lifestyle. Like you're saying, your friend in the pharma, maybe they want to have that cohort early on, but as their lifestyle changes, they may decide to move away from that. Right. Do you see Gen Z behaving very differently with remote work? Have you seen any of that? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a lot of these people, when they grow up in an environment where it's, um, you know, much more remote, I, you know, I don't know if I have a strong answer to that right off the cuff. I will say that some folks really, really want that cohort and to mix with other people. And some people are just more, much more comfortable in a more virtual environment. So on moving on to something else, you've, you've founded four companies now. Mm-hmm. Do you have like a set of foundations for how you build culture as you start something new? Do you start with values? Is that enough? Do you need more pillars? Yeah. So I would say that, um, you know, we, my first and second company had a co-founder and, you know, it was probably due to our learnings that we needed to lean into culture more. So what I did uh, when I took some time off between my second and third company is I did a lot of journaling and a lot of reading. Like I read, you know, Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness, which was very impactful. And I've been to, you know, that post many times. And I literally would take like, a sheet of paper, this is some random sheet of paper, and you know, I'd fold it in half, and on one half, I'd write about all the people who have uh, given me a lot of energy at work. Hmm. And then uh, on the other side of the paper, I'd write about all the people who've you know taken my energy, right? And I just feel like oh, they were just hard to work with. And then based on those individuals, I would write, well, what were some of the values or characteristics, sorry, the characteristics of those people who gave me energy and who took away energy? And so I would write those down for each of those groups. And then I would get another sheet of paper and I would write, hey, here are some proposed values for my upcoming company. And then I would overlay that sheet of paper of values over on top of these individuals and their characteristics. And I would say, does this promote that first group to thrive in this uh, environment? And conversely, on the other group, does it promote them to self-select out because you're never going to hire 100%? And the answer was like, oh, no. So I would rinse and repeat to try to get the values as closely as I could to let the first thrive and the second to self-select out. So that's what I did at Tiny Pulse at the beginning. And that's also what I'm doing here at Delight Labs. So really focus on having those cultural value underpinning and also sharing with them, well, like you chose to join our mission and our journey. And this is what our mission and journey is about, which may be different than, you know, other companies. You know, ours was very simple at Tiny Pulse to make employees happy, right? That's just the basics, right? Like, uh, you know, will this feature help make employees happier? You know, so, you know, those were some of the things that were very important. And, you know, we also had other things that were uh, important to us as we had a 1% pledge, which we gave uh, 1% of our time to the local community that we're privileged to be a part of. So once a quarter, everyone gets a paid day off to go do volunteer work. Usually we try to do that together. You know, we donate 1% of our product to nonprofits and then, uh, you know, 1% of our profits to charity as well. Super. And do you find that the culture in the companies you founded, let's say Tiny Pulse and Delight Labs, 
Is it at the point where it becomes a strong enough attractor for people to apply to work there? Yeah, I would say I'll take that in reverse. I mean, Delight Labs, we just we're just getting off the ground, so um, I that the verdict is out on that because it's too early. I would say for Tiny Pulse, certainly, uh, you know, people, you know, a great litmus test is if individuals who are working there are referring their friends, mm. right? Because they're not going to like trap their friends in a crappy culture. So I thought we had a pretty good pipeline, both in Seattle and also in Saigon of referring friends and uh, colleagues to come to um, Tiny Pulse. So I felt that, you know, once that flywheel gets going, it can be incredibly strong. For example, um, shout out to the great work that they did at Saigon is they built this incredible culture. They would also open up a part of giving back to community. We had this great office in District 1 right in the heart of it with a great view. So we would also host community events. So, you know, these uh, startups and entrepreneurs, they want to do events. They don't have a great space. So we'd say, okay, you can host it at our space for free. Uh, You know, just clean up and then you're good. And then so we were creating this brand out there that was forward thinking and also embracing the community. So we got some of the best talent in Saigon on a development capacity, So wow. which the, the team did a great job out there. That's such a win-win in, in so many ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, certainly. And wrapping up, is there something you think that we, we need to rethink as leaders about culture? What, what do we get fundamentally wrong? Oh, geez. You know, I, you know, I say that uh, it's getting harder and harder for leaders. I just read an article yesterday, the day before, about how the Uber head of diversity was put on leave because they were doing something around, uh, don't call me Karen. Or I, I don't know all the specifics, but in a nutshell, yeah. it was like, hey, you know, like you don't want to be called Karen because you're a middle age. Caucasian lady and the um, the baggage that comes with that. But then I think some people got, um, they didn't like that approach. They thought it should be, well, well, what about the the privilege that the Karens have that at the advantage of all these other disadvantaged groups? So I think there was that tug of war there. So I, you know, like I said, I don't know the specifics, but you know how challenging that is these days and how many different perspectives about being uh, politically correct and I think some leaders, they just choose like, look, we're just going to do great work at work and we're going to focus on work and we're not going to really worry about that. That that you go, go to your church or synagogue, uh, wherever your community, and you can be advocates for that. And then there's other people who are like, no, we're fully going to embrace that. And, you know, we're going to deal with all that. So, you know, there's this, this continuum and I just think it's, yeah, rethinking or, you know, how to balance that is just incredibly hard. And then you think about a remote environment, like how do you, like people who don't, aren't in the U.S., they they might not even know what it means, you know, and then they may have different perspectives. So I think it's just super challenging to be a leader to try to get that right. So I would just say that culturally, you know, one of my new values that I didn't have at Tiny Pulse that I'm putting into Delight Labs as a reflection of that is um, assume positive intent and be positive. So the idea is if someone says something, let's say about Asians, and I'm Asian, I'm like, well, I didn't, well, you know, that person just may have not known, right? And so I should assume positive intent. And then I should be positive as a result versus thinking that glass is half full, like, oh my gosh, they're making fun of me. 
Uh, you know, they're taking advantage of me. I'm like, no, 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 no. The, the, the world has a lot of misunderstandings and polarization. Let's try to find the middle ground and always have positive intent and assume positive intent on the counterparty. So that is something I would leave with the listeners. It's just like, it's hard enough. So let's at least try to have positive intent and have our employees embrace that as well. So instead of having you know, the gray area leading to more collisions, hopefully the, the gray area leads to more bridges instead of walls. It reminds me of this saying, we like to be judged by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions. Mm. And it's very humbling because, of course, we should also try and figure out with curiosity, with positivity, what might have been the intent rather than judging an action, which, you know, on face value might be personal, but in reality might not be intentionally so. Yes, I like that. I'm going to repeat that. So we like to be judged by our intent, but we judge others by their actions. Okay, I'm going to have to steal that one from you. (laughs) And it's not me. I forgot where I got it from, but yeah, I'm just standing on the shoulders of... Don't let facts get in the uh, way of a good story, Andreas. (laughs) (laughs) And um, just to wrap up, David, is there something you recommend we watch or we read or we look into that has inspired you recently? Yeah, you know, there's recently, like I've been giving out this ebook and it's called Die With Zero. And I, I find the, the premise is super simple, which is we spend a lot of our lives, especially, you know, type A personalities accumulating wealth. And that's at the expense of time, health, experiences. So is thinking about that continuum and the ideal time to enjoy a lot of activities and experiences in our 20s and 30s. And a lot of times people will say, well, when I retire, when I get older, I'll do that. Like, for example, go to a, your favorite ball game. Yeah. But if you're in your 60s and 70s and someone invites you to that ball game, you might think like, wait, is there a wheelchair ramp? Because maybe you have a, a stroller. Uh, yeah. Where are the restrooms? Like, I'm worried about like, is there going to be a line for the restrooms? Is it going to be accessible if I need to go? Right? Is it going to be too loud? So there's a lot of these behavioral changes. Is it, the book just pushes people to think about uh, their lives differently and how they wish to spend their wealth and both monetary and more more importantly, health and time. And what's the title again? Die with zero. Die with zero. Super. David, thank you for your uh, for your time, your insights, your uh, stories, your culture paradigms, what worked and we, what didn't. And uh, I think we all learned from that. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. It was happy to be here. 